I had people tell me you could see their light, you can feel their feathers brush against you, you can feel their hands on you, and the heat energy that emits from them is very real and it's impossible to ignore. We are conditioned for this, not even as evangelicals, just as people who live in this world and in this society. We are conditioned for this. In those things that happen, where we find ourselves at a point of need, when our own strength fails us, and there are other people, people there to see us through those places of struggle, difficulty, pain, and fear, that we truly see what most people setting their sights on angels rarely do. Even when good things happen, there are a lot of people out there that have a hard time attributing those things to positive actions and behaviors on their part. It has to be placed someplace else. And angels are a very convenient place to put those little victories in life. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And, and it's, it's time to get unbound. Angels. For those extra trying times when one imaginary friend just isn't enough. Or, to be fair, for those times when shit gets just a little too real for God to handle or even care about. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight, in case it isn't obvious, yes, we are talking about angels. The good, the bad, and the literally ugly. The doctrine, the folklore, and the alarmingly widespread belief that they enjoy. Angels are more popular than God, people. It's true. We have some stats to share that will blow your mind. But first, our CBD... <laughs> CBD? Yeah. But first, our Christians Behaving Badly segment tonight deals with sex abuse that is surprisingly Catholic Church free, but no less <laughs> infuriating. Yes. So a little trigger warning if that's a touchy subject right. for you. We'll also be hearing a bit about another topic I personally find triggering, but I'll shut up for now and hand things <laughs> over to my co-host. Shell, what have you got? Oh, hi. Hi, honey. Have a good break? Yes. Did you? I did. It we was We were awesome. together during it, so we know we had a good break. Well, the listeners don't know that, and now they do. So, <laughs> okay. What have you got for us? Well, first in Is Anyone Surprised News... Hemet Mehta writes in the Friendly Atheist blog, Southern Baptist leaders shut down system-wide investigation into sexual abuse. Oh, that's lovely. Just shut it down. Let's just pretend that it didn't it fucking down. happen. There you go. Yeah, just put it in a box. And then pretend to forget about it. Yeah. Yes, because that works so well, especially in these kinds of situations. Yeah. Well, uh, this week, the Southern Baptists are having their annual meeting where they decide how much they are not going to respond to racism or sexual abuse within their ranks. These two problems have been sticking points for the Southern Baptists for years. While they've recently announced that they've hired an outside firm, Guidepost Solutions, they're only going to investigate certain allegations, which are not comprehensive. It's worrying that the committee was put in charge of investigating itself. But they do that kind of thing all the time. Right. A lot of corporations do that. Yeah, they do. Because they know that things are going to come out basically in their favor. It's going to make them look good. Mm -hmm. But there's no way to look good. No. In a situation like this. No, there really isn't. A group of sexual abuse victims has gone public with their stories and are urging the convention to investigate these allegations. 
But of course, there are some within the leadership who do not wish to have this investigation at all. Of course they don't. Of course not. Because how awful is it going to make them and their organization look when yeah. this stuff becomes super duper public like it has with another branch of Christianity? Another fairly large branch, yeah. yes. Um, well, here's how one of the leaders decided to respond to this. And he says, in most cases, our churches are 100 to 150 people. The children's Sunday schools are run by the mothers of the children and their grandmothers. There's no safer place on earth for children than most Southern Baptist churches. If there is a problem, we can address it without hiring a third party and giving them unlimited access to our people. Anyone who has been following any religious sexual abuse claims will know this idea is laughable. We know churches aren't safe. It's kind of obvious at this point. I don't think there's any such thing as a safe church for anyone. No. But certainly not for young children. No. Or anyone who can be exploited in this way. And I mean, I know, I know that that really makes it a much broader thing to say it that right. way. But I think people understand what I'm saying when yeah. I say something like that there are certain impressionable types out there, yeah. whether they're children or teenagers or even adults that right. fit a certain profile that sexual predators like to hone in on. Right, yeah. Another leader offered a financial objection. He says that the original proposal was comprehensive enough. Otherwise, he said, this will never end monetarily. Where does it end? I have an answer for that. You want to know where it ends since you asked? Does this person have a name? His name is Jim Gregory. Okay. Well, since you asked, Mr. Gregory, it ends when the victims are made whole. Right. It ends when none of the victims have to worry about paying for the lifetime of therapy it's going to take to deal with what happened to them. It ends with you doing the right thing right. and doing it with an attitude of penitence, not the signature evangelical arrogance you seem to think appropriate here. Does that answer your question? Because that's about as succinct as I can put it to you. Right. That is where it ends. And I'm just like, okay, it never ends. How bad do you think this problem is? Or how bad do you know this problem is and you just don't want it to come out? Denial. Denial. It's not just a river in Egypt. Nope. And I found when I was doing um, secondary sources, I found that while the post on the Friendly Atheist was written on 615, ABC News has an article dated the 16th that says, Delegates at the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting voted overwhelmingly to create a task force to oversee an independent investigation into the denomination's handling of sexual abuse. The resolution calls for the newly elected SBC president, Alabama pastor Ed Litton to appoint the task force, which will head up a review of allegations that the denomination's executive committee mishandled abuse cases, intimidated victims and advocates, and resisted reforms. It was a sharp turn of events for the SBC's largest gathering in decades. And one that was absolutely positively necessary. Oh, and definitely. just a day later... Yes. Someone, someone on that committee yeah. came to their senses. Actually, it wasn't the committee. It was the delegates, the people from the churches who were oh, sent. Oh, yeah, gotcha. They said, we want this. So I like that. Yeah. I like that it came from the people. Yeah. Their and, pastors obviously yeah. are not doing something right if they're thinking like that. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? 
The SPC's business committee had planned to refer the proposal to its executive committee, the same entity alleged to have failed in its response to abuse cases, but church representatives voted in the morning to put the matter before the convention floor and then approved it later in the day against only token opposition. I'm amazed they managed to scrape up even token opposition. Oh, I know. But, I mean, I shouldn't be. But, mm. you know, I'm, I'm amazed that in the light of everything that happened, yeah. apparently within 24 hours. Right. That there would still be anyone with the balls to stand up and say, yeah, no, we, we don't want this. Yeah. Or we don't, we don't want to acknowledge this. Yeah. The task force was proposed by Tennessee pastor Grant Gaines following leaked letters and secret recordings purporting to show some leaders tried to slow walk accountability efforts and intimidate and retaliate against those who advocated on the issue. It seems that the delegates to the annual meeting of the SVC show far more compassion and concern for their fellow Baptists than their leadership does. Well, that's for sure. Yeah, I really hope they hold their feet to the fire. I hope they hold them upside down by the ankles and shake their fucking pockets empty. Yeah, that's that what would I be nice, for. too. So what else have you got for us this week? Well, this is the, these people are the asshats of the week department. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I'm, oh, these I've, people. I've read through it, and Ugh. like I said, gave myself a trigger warning before we sat down to record, yeah. just so that I don't get too hot under the collar over this one, because yeah. this is a hot-button issue for the yeah. spider. Yes. In general, I don't mind if parents homeschool their kids. I do. <laughs> well, I do. if one or both parents has taught school before, understand what their children need to learn and know how to make the information needed into interesting and comprehensive lessons. It still is not school. It's you are not still school. not learning social skills. You are still not learning how well, to function in anything that resembles a community. I don't care what their background is. It's well, never it's, a good idea. It's that, but it's also like, do you have a group? That is not full of religious nut jobs. That your kids can be with other kids. You yeah, know, good are luck you... with that. Yeah, right. I know. Good it's luck so with scary. That. It's so scary. Unfortunately, most Christians don't meet those expectations or don't care to. That's the real operative, right? Yeah, there. that's the problem. They focus more on religious indoctrination than math, history, and science, leaving their children without the variety of education provided in the public schools. On the Friendly Atheist blog, I found the story of one girl who was told to make up her own grades and high school transcript. And while I found this story on the Friendly Atheist, I followed the links to her blog, which is Cynthia Jayub, J-E-U-B. I'm calling it Jayub. Mm-hmm. Despite her struggles to find the holes in her education, she seems to write very well. It's weird, but that is one thing. That seems to be common with homeschooling. Good handwriting, good communication skills. I'm not sure how they draw that out of these kids, but it's a common thing. Well, she had a debate club, so they did debate with other Christians, of course. Well, of course. Of course. Of course. And she had an apologetics class, of course. That was outside (laughs) the home? or No. Well, yeah, so that's not going to help you learn how to read and write. No. It's it's a weird phenomenon, but But I have seen it more than once. You have to read if you're going to read the Bible. Yeah, but you're only reading the Bible. Well, and all other correspondences. And And let me tell you something about the Bible. There are issues 
with grammar and sentence structure from the well, King, from the King James onward. Yes, of course there is. There's no possible way that they are learning good written communication skills by reading this book in any of its forms. They're yeah. not learning it that no, way. No, they're not. Cynthia, her parents, and her 15 siblings were featured, say it with me, on a TLC show because called... Because of course they were. ...called Kids by the Dozen. Ugh. You know, oh, I think names. TLC has some fuckery to answer for. No, I think there's a whole new circle in hell <laughs> that has been reserved for TLC producers. I'm, that's just my opinion. We can add on to Dante's Inferno since that's where it came from anyway. We can do whatever the fuck we want. It's all it's fiction. It's all fiction. Did anyone need to watch the antics of people whose only real goal is to have as many kids as possible? Ugh. Yeah, no. 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 We Nobody. In her blog, she describes the process. I was taught primarily for religious and political purposes, not to prepare me for independence in adulthood. My high school transcript and the fact that I wrote it myself demonstrates how little I was taught. For me, being homeschooled meant that my access to information was severely limited by what my parents thought was true. It meant that I was expected to teach my younger siblings at times. It meant such ignorance that I could not identify the subjects I had and hadn't been taught. There was nothing to measure my knowledge against but my only teachers, my parents. They believed they could teach their children everything they would need to know, which is an arrogant thing for any one or two people to assume. The result is that I entered adulthood with a terrible ignorance, naivete, and bigotry. And that is... That's the problem with homeschooling in a nutshell. Oh, yeah. I still have it on the back burner to do an entire episode on this, but I'm afraid just the way that I approach this subject, we could talk about it for a month. Oh, I so know. So I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to frame this yeah. so that, A, I don't scream into this mic for two hours. Yeah, I and know. That it doesn't go off into a six-hour tirade that I have to do over three episodes. But yeah. I really, really could. And that last line right there really encapsulates most of what is wrong with it. Right. At her parents' request, she went on Google, found a template for a school transcript, and set about deciding how well she did in each of her classes. She'd taught herself math, but she didn't think she'd done very well at it. So she gave herself B's. Since she'd never gotten a grade in anything at all, and her parents encouraged her to get as close to a 4.0 as possible, she gave all of her other classes A's. Because why not? Why not? These were classes like Bible, debate, sewing, piano, and hunter's safety. Hunter's safety. Those were her first year classes. That's an interesting elective, especially for homeschooling. Yeah, that is kind of weird. Well, I say especially for homeschooling. Now I'm thinking, okay, if you're literally, if you literally find yourself living in a shotgun shack. Oh, God. I suppose, <laughs> I suppose Hunter's safety would, would be, be a good thing. Mm. Okay, this is from her blog again. In my junior year, I wrote that I did a publishing internship. That means that my dad decided to demote me from a paid position in the family business to an unpaid intern. That summer, several other high school students became unpaid interns too, and my dad's reasoning for demoting my sister and me was so my kids don't get special treatment. Oh, come on. Yeah. 
I also wrote in my senior year that I had been a volunteer child counselor, which meant I'd worked briefly at a Christian day camp in the summer to help children with performing tricks while riding horses. Oh, that's sweet. Yes, it is. Ultimately, what I was learning was how to be overwhelmed with too many responsibilities around the house. I worked for my dad and my mom, who each had to-do lists for me. I wrote this transcript to try and show that I have done schoolwork that I hadn't done. Most of my work was spent looking after the family and family business. So it was that I got into college making a poor case for my K-12 education. Once in college, I failed in many ways because my education had been inadequate. It would take several more years for me to gain the experience necessary to look back on my education with some perspective. It's very sad. It is. It's terrible. I can't imagine trying to deal with college with those huge gaps in my education, even at the place we went. Yeah. And I'm sorry, there was... There was no challenge no. to the stuff that we were being taught. No one, there were only a couple of professors and one that I can name yes. that ever challenged us to think. Right. But, you know, that challenge to think, professor, I won't say your name, but I still like you. You're yes. one of the few people that I still would say I like in this place. Mm. If you are still there, I have to thank you from the bottom of my heart for telling me that I needed to think. Yes. Because guess what? I did. And here I am today, feeling much better now than I did then. I can't even imagine dealing with the anger for being cheated out of a decent education just because my parents were afraid to put me in public school because I might meet a non-Christian. Or get fed non-Christian ideas. Or even progressive ideas, which is more to the point. Or maybe even get unbound yes. from their type of thinking. Yeah. Which, I mean, oh my God, can you even imagine? Yeah. You know, I thought it was difficult being an evangelical as a teenager in a house with other evangelicals. Right. I can't even begin to imagine what it would be like to come home one day with this realization that you don't believe any of this shit anymore and then having to function within the framework of that family structure. I oh, can't yeah. even begin to wrap my brain around what that would have to be like. And I know that there are people who have gone through it and yeah. maybe right now and may even be listening to this show going through it right now. Right. As teenagers, young adults, or anyone who finds themselves in the position of having to put on the game face mm. around people that they love or depend upon. Yeah. Yeah. That's the real scary part. Yeah, that is, is that scary. You know, sometimes keeping the game face is the difference between having a place to lay your head down at night or not. Right. Yeah. yeah. It can be that bad. So, yeah, I completely and totally empathize with this girl's story. I want to bookmark this. I think there's some good stuff here. Mm -hmm. When we do an actual episode right. on this, there's a lot is, to draw from. Yeah, her blog is very good. And so. like I said, I'm bookmarking it because I really think that there's a lot to be learned from her mm -hmm. and her perspectives that we just don't have the time to get into tonight because that is not our topic. <laughs> Before we do get into our main topic, just wanted to let you know that our Patreon is up at patreon.com slash unbound podcast network. You can become a patron starting at the $5 level. That's just over a buck an episode. 
And for that, you get the same awesome content that you're getting now. You get it just a little bit earlier. Usually sometime on Friday is when the new episodes are going to drop for patrons. So you get in on that. And the more of you that get on board, the more we can start building on the other stuff mm -hmm. that we want to do as part of this show. We want to be able to do those live meetups and intro new episodes that way. And just have those little intimate gatherings with the people that support us and help us keep this thing going. And if that's outside the realm of possibility for you right now, again, just keep absorbing the content. Get what you need from it. Tell somebody new about us this week. Share it where you can. Give us the likes. Give us the five-star ratings. Leave a review if you have a couple of minutes to do that. There are all kinds of things that you can do that don't cost money that will help us tremendously. And first and foremost, get what you need. We're here for you, and we want you to have this. And we want to be able to be here and keep doing it for you for as long as we possibly can. Because I know that it's helping some people out there. And I know that it will help more than I'll never see or hear from or know about. And that's just fine. I don't care. Yeah. Just get yourself unbound. Get away from this religion that frames love as hate and hate as love. Get away Get out, get unbound today. And we're happy to be here to help you and to make that happen in your life. With that, let's dive right into our main topic for this episode. So we're talking about angels this time, and we're going to look, as we always do with things like this, at what the Bible says about them and the things that people choose to believe and latch onto about them. Moreover, we're going to look at the psychological elements that drive belief in angels, even among people who aren't particularly religious. There are a number of books, both traditionally published and self-published, that are either titled The Truth About Angels or have that phrase somewhere in the title. What I figured out in the course of researching this episode is that there are as many interpretations of what angels are and the purposes they serve as there are storefront fortune tellers who think they can look at a deck of cards and pull meaning for your life out of them. I mean, hell, sometimes these things show up together. I remember getting a reading once from a medium who used angel cards mm -hmm. instead of the traditional tarot. I really liked that reading. I thought he gave me a great reading, but I mean, that's as creative as the name for this deck gets. Right. They're just angel cards. Right. And I've since seen a few more of them. And yeah, they're interesting, but they're just glorified tarot. I mean, that's really all they are. But angels aren't just for charlatans, sermon illustrations, or false comfort. Oh, no. This comes from an article in HollywoodReporter.com called Evolution of angels and TV shows. Quote, angelic characters are as much of a primetime trope as the wacky neighbor or the wisecracking best friend. From Michael Landon's soul-saving Jonathan on the 1980s drama Highway to Heaven, to Roma Downey's spiritual guide Monica, untouched by an angel, to the goofy denizens of the afterlife in NBC's new comedy The Good Place, Heaven seems to have been on Earth, or at least primetime, for ages. However, it seems like they've gone from being divine messengers of God to bitter, petulant teenagers, and that's not far off. Mm. When you think about some of the newer shows that are out there, Supernatural, The Messengers, Dominion, Lucifer. Now, in that last one, I got to tell you, I actually like the show Lucifer. Oh, yeah, that was a fun show. I think it, it was. It actually is. It's yeah. back. Yeah. And uh, and it's it's actually doing pretty well on Netflix. 
But as far as Lucifer goes, we're not talking about a petulant teenager here. We're just talking about basically a very, very oversexed man-child. Mm-hmm. That's, that's pretty much who he is. And uh, also pretty damn good at the um, investigative thing. Yeah. Know, that, oh, who, who would have thought, who would have thought old Scratch would make a good detective? But uh, it's actually an interesting premise for the show. And uh, they've already done some really good stuff. If you've never checked out Lucifer, then I definitely recommend it. Some of those shows, by the way, have had some pretty long lifespans. Supernatural, for example, is in its 12th season. And although Fox decided that Lucifer had finished its run, well, the fans disagreed. And they convinced Netflix to keep producing it. So now we're in, I think, season five. As for movies that deal with angels, I would love to have a full discussion just on this one. But instead, I'll just give a quick nod to one of the best lampoons of Catholic doctrine surrounding angels I've ever seen, a little movie called Dogma. I feel like the timeliness of this movie was significant. It was basically Kevin Smith telling the world to lighten the fuck up about all the supernatural bullshit that the Catholic Church tries to sell people. Uh, The Golgothan shit demon that can be taken down with air freshener, that was a nice touch, as was George Carlin as a priest. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you need to watch this movie, like today, like when the episode is over, especially (laughs) if you're listening to this on Sunday and it's fresh. This is Sunday afternoon entertainment at its finest, as far as I'm concerned. Um, But enough about dogma, because again, I I could probably talk for an entire episode about this movie, but the vast majority of movies about angels over the past several decades have been the feel-good rom-com variety, but more recent ones do also have some pretty dark themes. I thought immediately of movies like City of Angels, Angels in the Outfield, and Michael, all of which now go back quite a ways, but it also occurred to me that the Prophecy movies with Christopher Walken... Yeah came out around the same time, so there was plenty of point-counterpoint in popular media then, too. You had John Travolta for the feel-good crowd and Christopher Walken bringing the creep factor for those who like their supernatural storytelling about angels to be just a little bit darker. The depiction of angels on screen was, for a long time, much less sinister than Christopher Walken's Gabriel, (laughs) and often revolved around the helping and problem-solving aspects of their missions. Touched by an Angel and Highway to Heaven came quickly to mind when I started thinking about this episode in general. And let's not forget good old Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life. Now, the satanic panic in the 1980s and 90s seems to be where the shift from benevolent guardian angels to malevolent monsters with both righteous and unrighteous intent began, with demons being in the forefront of a lot of people's attention. Authors, screenwriters, and TV producers began capitalizing on the newfound interest in supernatural topics and steered the perception of angels and demons in the direction of the sinister. And it wasn't all about popular secular media either. Frank Peretti and Roger Elwood were two Christian authors who took the concept of angels versus demons and made it evangelical mainstream. As people in general, we love good versus evil stories, and when these concepts dip even a little into the realm of the supernatural, we eat it up even more. Of course, evangelicals in particular hate these kinds of interpretations of angels. They want to keep our thoughts centered on the common positive stereotypes about them, specifically that they're humanoid in appearance, insanely beautiful, but also terrifying to the eye, hence that don't-be-afraid opening line that's common to angels, particularly in the New Testament. They 
have huge majestic wings they wear white flowing robes etc and so on we've all seen this depiction more often than we ever wanted to another thing that depictions of angels in evangelical circles have in common is that their descriptions are very new testament in nature angels exist to lend aid give guidance save lives and solve problems for humans but what does the old testament say about them in many instances where an angel shows up in the Old Testament, they're there to wreak havoc or establish an intimidating presence. In Genesis chapter 3, God places an angel, a cherubim with a flaming sword, as a sentry guarding the entrance to Eden so that Adam and Eve can't get back in. In Exodus 12, God sends a destroyer to wipe out the firstborn sons of Egypt that many interpret and refer to as the angel of death. In Numbers 22, it's an angel waiting to kill Balaam that his donkey has to warn him off of. There are also examples of angels providing guidance and comfort, though, in the Old Testament. One of the examples that had an impact on me back in the day was the story of Hagar's flight from Sarai, where an angel tells Hagar that she has to go back to Sarai. But of course, she's afraid of Sarai because even though this whole business of I can't make a baby with my husband, so you make one with him was her idea, she became very resentful. She became very jealous. And Hagar obviously didn't want to go back to that. So this angel shows up and basically makes her an offer she can't refuse and tells her just how great things are going to be if she goes back and she does this and your descendants will be uncountable and all this awesome stuff that's promised to her if she goes back. The Bible doesn't go that much deeper into Hagar's story than that. I'm actually amazed that they took her story that far. Yeah, really. Another one that I had thought about was the angel of the Lord device slash trope that you see a lot, especially in the Old Testament. This is a term used a lot when an angel shows up in the narrative. Now, some think that every mention of the angel of the Lord applies to the same angel. I think it's just a common moniker for when they need an angel in the narrative. I'm not going to go through all of these, but we'll look at a couple of them. In Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord appears to Abraham. In Exodus 3, the angel of the Lord appears to Moses. In Judges 2, an angel of the Lord appears to Israel. In Zechariah 1, the angel of the Lord pleads with the Lord to have mercy on Jerusalem. In Zechariah 3, 4, the angel of the Lord takes away the sin of the high priest Joshua, and so on and so on and so on. You get the point. But it's the same word. It's the same descriptor that is used in all of these. So is this one being or is it just a common descriptor of the types of beings that would be in charge of things like this? I think that it could go either way. Not that it matters all that much, but I do think that it could go either way. And then we have specific classifications of angels. Now, to be honest, researching this part of it was a chore. Why? Because there are so many varying answers to the question, how many different types of angels are there, that it's difficult to find commonalities. In some instances, there are two classes. In some, there are three, six, eight, or nine. Some of the sources I found seem to want to rank angels like they were characters in RPGs. And they literally, it looks like it. It might have been, because I know a lot of RPGs do use angels as playable characters. Oh, I'm sure that they do. Yeah. I don't think that this particular source meant to do it that way, yeah, but just I'm just did. thinking, okay, well, what, what should I be rolling for strength, intelligence, wisdom, dexterity, blah, blah, blah. 
what does a good angel role look like? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, I know. But uh, no, there, some of these, they really just literally looked like I was supposed to use these to create a character for an RPG. <laughs> um, oh, and here's a trustworthy URL for you. Compellingtruth.org. Um, I looked at this and almost went right past it. But in fairness, there's some good information here. According to them, there are three types of good angels. You have the cherubim, the seraphim, and the archangels. And no, they didn't come up with this. This is stuff I can remember hearing in college and probably before. The first two seem to only exist in the Old Testament, while the archangel model seems to appear in both the Old and New Testaments. The seraphim serve God directly. And the way that they were described in a couple of these sources, it made me think of Snoke's guards in The Last Jedi. It made yeah. me think of that scene because it feels like that's the kind of presence yeah. that they exude. They're described in Isaiah 6 as having six wings, two to cover their faces, two to cover their feet, and two for flight. Then there are the cherubim. Forget any painting you have ever seen with cherubs in it the cherubim have multiple faces possess both human and animal features and of course wings then there are the archangels two archangels are named in the bible gabriel and michael such wonderfully european names for creatures that predate europe and yes i know they had more appropriate names in quote-unquote original texts it still gives me a chuckle that we have people with names like michael james peter and elizabeth in a book that takes place long before these names were ever even a thing it just strikes me funny i think they could have tried just a little bit harder there are also only three angels in all of scripture who are ever referred to by name i just gave you two of them gabriel and michael the other one of course is lucifer And Lucifer was, in fact, a quote-unquote fallen angel, so he counts as part of that description. Some sources take it even further. And I'm looking at the eight kinds of angels and demons in the Bible. This is from OverviewBible.com. I'm not going to read all of these, but the very first one that you scroll down to, goat demons. They call them goat demons and classify them in with angels. Well, okay, if demons are fallen angels, then okay. But goat demons is oddly specific, as far as I'm concerned. Then they go through the the regular stuff, the cherubim, the seraphim, the archangels. And all of these, actually, you know, now that I'm looking at some of these, I know where, where at least some of them come from, and I'm going to get into it in just a second. But they even rank things like these nebulous concepts like rulers, powers, etc. Um, what else do we have? Oh, this narrows it down. Living creatures is another one on their list. Yeah. It's just, it's bad shit. This whole, <laughs> this whole thing is bad shit. And I want it off my screen now. Um, let's see. There was an article in how stuff works that is all, it's basically reprinted from the works of someone who called himself pseudo Dionysius. Why the pseudo part, I have no idea, but he basically came up with this classification of hierarchies for angels that contain nine different classifications. And he's got all the basics in here too. We have seraphim, cherubim, but then you get things like thrones and dominions or dominations. Mm -hmm. Some angels are doms, okay? (laughs) Virtues, powers, principalities, And here come the archangels. And then finally, just this generic angels. 
or regular angels. So I guess the other eight are irregular angels. I don't know. I want this off my screen now, too. Okay. The only four classifications that seem to show up everywhere are the ones we've already mentioned, plus fallen angels, a.k.a. demons. There is also Ezekiel's Ophanim, the wheel within a wheel, that seems to only show up in Ezekiel 1 and possibly in Revelation, but those two accountings of multi-eyed creatures are pretty different. There's a lot of disparity. I can only imagine that that's because Ezekiel only had cannabosum and John the Revelator may have found some shrooms. I mean, because this is there is no non-chemical explanation <laughs> for either of these descriptions. There's no no one on pure air ever saw anything like this. Now I just gave a snippet of what non-humanoid angels look like just a minute ago. Grunge.com, I love that name. Yeah. Doesn't sound terribly credible, but there's some good stuff here. Grunge.com explains the less talked about aspects of angels in a marvelously vernacular sort of way. So let me defer to them in explaining this. Christianity throughout its history has painted very rosy, idyllic pictures of things when the biblical accounts are far different and far less desirable. This is particularly true in how the Bible describes cherubs and how we define them based on popular depictions in art and media. And here's a little something directly from that article. Quote, one of the most vivid descriptions of angels in the Bible comes from the prophet Ezekiel's inaugural vision found in Ezekiel 1. It describes two main types of angels. The first are the cherubim, which is plural, singular is cherub. Cherubs have been assigned a variety of tasks by God, one of the most important of which is to guard the Garden of Eden. Now, if you've heard of cherubim before, you probably don't think of them as the scary guard type. Today, cherubs are typically depicted as chubby little babies, but the Bible disagrees. According to Ezekiel's vision, every cherub, quote, had the face of a human being, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. No one on pure air sees any of this shit either. <laughs> Back to the quote. If the combined faces of four different species aren't frightening enough, cherubs also have two sets of wings, one for flight and the other to conceal their bodies. Additionally, cherubs have straight legs and shiny bull hooves. Just you know, let just that sink what? in for a second. Like, just, just let it percolate a little. Ophanim, this is that kind of one-shot deal kind of angel that you see in the beginning of the book of Ezekiel. The word Ophanim comes from the Hebrew word for wheels. It's a fitting name because Ezekiel's vision suggests that some of God's angels are actually floating eye-covered wheels. Per Ezekiel 1, quote, each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. End quote. Further, Again, from the article, the Ophanim are said to sparkle like topaz and to hover in the air as they mimic the motion of the cherubim. Per Ezekiel, both the cherubim and the Ophanim help to guard the throne of God himself. Given their frightening description, they're certainly good picks for the job. And that's just a little bit of what's in this article. I recommend reading the whole thing. It's actually quite good. So... Basically, in the Old Testament, angels often appear as militaristic or adversarial. They don't always have a human or even distinctly corporeal form. In most popular contexts, though, we are supposed to believe that they are allies. 
we are also conditioned to think of them as both visible and invisible. Some people claim to have seen them. Most treat them like unseen powers, just like their god. This leads to the concept of guardian angels, and it's one that a downright scary number of people seem to believe in. Psalm 91, 11, and 12 says, For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And on the heels of that, here's a little something from an article from thearticle.com. It's from a piece called One in Three of Us Now Believes in Guardian Angels, What's Going On? And here's a quick quote. An ICM poll shows that one in three people question believe in guardian angels and one in 10 report seeing angels. In another survey for the think tank Theos, 21% of those who never worship in church confess that they believe in angels, along with, in a different study, 7% hold on to your asses, people, 7% of atheists. How on earth do you call yourself an atheist and still believe in this? Matt Dillahunty would have a field day with you. Please call him and tell him you believe in this and just prepare to reap the whirlwind. Okay, that's all I'm saying about that. And make sure that you mention that you're an atheist. Yes. Because, I mean, that will make him go super cyan. I, <laughs> I, I guarantee it. You want to see a talk show host's head explode? Tell them that you're an atheist and you believe in angels. 7% of atheists, you know, I'm, I'm seeing Cher in Moonstruck just smacking Nicolas Cage upside the head and going, snap out of it. Mm. You're an atheist and you believe in angels? Snap out of it, please. Mm. For, for, the, yes. for the good of all humanity, snap <laughs> out of it. But this is according to somebody that I think has actually put a lot of really good thought into this. His name is Peter Stanford. And he is actually the author of the article that we're going to be focusing on a little bit more going forward. In the article, Stanford also comments on the many disparities that exist within Christianity as to what angels are and how they interact with people. Thinking in purely atheist terms here, it's another case of they're going to act however people want them to because said interaction only exists in the mind of the individual. And Lots of individuals have very individual takes on angels. Stanford refers at one point to angels as being, quote, celestial intercessors in many flavors of Christianity, and he's right. He goes on to say that, quote, that same teaching has long insisted that angels do not have bodies. Augustine in the fourth century said they were made of light, while Thomas Aquinas in the 13th preferred compressed air. Compressed air compressed air. So when I pull a computer apart and blast it with compressed air, I'm using angel power. Mm. I always knew that uh, Tommy was a little bit of an airhead, but I really had no idea just how much of one. So the real question here is how can 10% of us be seeing them if they are nothing but light or compressed air? Stanford also points out that faith is on the decline in the West, and yet this fascination with angels and out-and-out -out belief in angels remains. When looking at the Western world on a whole, not just here in the U.S., it becomes clear that only about a quarter of people out there describe themselves as devoutly religious. And I love what he says here, quote, by such measurements, angels are doing rather better than God in retaining our allegiance. And he's right. 
And I love the reason that he gives for it, too. I was actually thinking this as I was reading the rest of the article. He says that part of the answer has to come down to the shortcomings of institutional religion. Citing the church's long history of suppressing science and insisting on the literal truth of the Bible in every word and detail. Well, fewer and fewer people every year are buying that bill of goods, but they still have the need to feel comforted, especially in moments of crisis. They know in the depths of their intellects that God, at a bare minimum, doesn't care about their problems, but they don't want to discount the existence of supernatural forces in the universe. They aren't fans of God so much, but they're fans of super beings, so they create their own other imaginary celestial friends or allies to fill the void. He goes on to say, people look elsewhere in that yearning that seems hardwired into humanity when faced by the great challenges of life, those things being things like suffering, grief, and death, for something transcendent, less visible, less easily verifiable, but above all, consoling because if it feels good, it must be right. And it must be true. And I'm a big, if it feels good, do it kind of person. Mm. I think that it's usually good advice, but let's just make sure that if it feels good, it also operates within the realm of reality. Yeah, I, mean, I don't idea. think we're asking much. And it's in this place that he says the concept of guardian angels takes a real foothold with people. The whole notion of needing comfort and consolation. Guardian angels have a very unique appeal, and it's not just in evangelical circles by any means. Seven uh, percent of atheists still—it's making my head explode to think about it. But also, let's just keep in mind that people are people. Okay, so I think it's kind of batshit to allow yourself to stay in that mindset when you know that the rest of it isn't true. But I also understand this need. And this is where this belief comes from. It comes from a place of need. So in that aspect of things, he's very right. And he's also right about the whole unique appeal part of this. I think that the widespread appeal that goes way beyond even Christianity in general, I think it stems from several key reasons here. For starters, angels don't seem to require allegiance. They don't need to be prayed to. They don't need to be worshipped. They don't need to be venerated. They're there to do a job, and that's that. They don't seem to care if you go to church, either. They don't lend deference to anyone on earth, let alone people who claim to speak for God. They are generically religious and lend themselves well to the term spiritual. So it's not just for Christianity, and really never has been because there are angels in other forms of mythology also. They can be inserted into anyone's life situation and have positive circumstances tied to them. So even when good things happen, there are a lot of people out there that have a hard time attributing those things to positive actions and behaviors on their part. It has to be placed someplace else. And angels are a very convenient place to put those little victories in life. In a lot of ways, those points I just listed all lead to an oddly secularized view of angels. I also think that's why secular media can get away with selling movies, TV shows, and more that revolve around the existence and actions of angels. Far too many people still have a vague enough belief in God that an at least partly secular or non-committal in the eyes of any religion higher power seems both plausible and pleasing to them. 
Then there's the overlying message in the movie Angels in the Outfield, wherein people by nature have an innate need to believe in something supernatural. They're just not that picky about what they call it. And that group of people is becoming less and less picky mm. by the day. Angels can also be molded to the individual's personality, so darkness and light are both fair game when deciding how to portray angels on screen. Take your pick. Christopher Lloyd helping a bad baseball team win, or Christopher Walken delivering an uber-dark interpretation of the angel Gabriel and stirring shit up. Some also believe that Jesus actually says at one point that children have guardian angels. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Matthew 18.10. What were we talking about with really awesome biblical grammar? <laughs> yeah. Jesus the so redundant. Mm. Um, but I digress. Stafford also thinks, and I agree, that concepts like angels gain more appeal when society is in turmoil. People find personal empowerment in angels largely because they've been taught to think about angels in more human terms than they realize. Here's another little quote from the same article. When the artists of the Renaissance wanted to give expression to new notions of how every individual could have a one-to-one -one relationship with the divine, rather than be treated as part of a collective endeavor, they painted and sculpted and wrote about disarmingly human angels who were like us in every way save that they had wings. So long before there was any such thing as evangelical doctrine, people from all walks of life were being taught and conditioned to believe in things, angels being just one, but it definitely was and is one. And it's one that evangelicalism uses as a very effective marketing tool. And like I said, this episode's going to be a little bit more evangelical light because this is more of an all-encompassing sort of thing. It flows through all of Christianity and a lot of other traditions too. But I don't think that anyone capitalizes on this the way that evangelicals do. To solidify this point in my own head, I went to our old Save Money on Our Textbooks go-to Christian book distributors, formerly known as CBD, but can't be anymore because CBD means something entirely new now. I went there to see how many books there have been on the topic of angels in just the past couple of years. And let's just say there's a lot and there's a message for every individual itching ear on the pages of this catalog or on their website. You see, you see this is what, this is how I keep thinking about them. I keep thinking, yeah. I still think about them as a catalog. Yes. Um, but there are literally topics for every mood or situation. You can solve all your problems with angels. Angels are great protectors. Angels can fix your marriage. Angels can fix your finances. Angels can cure you of the gay. And boy, are angels interesting. Let's see some of those interesting titles right now. Angel Armies on Assignment. The Division of Angels and Assignments of Angels and How to Partner with Them. Wow. <laughs> that's that's... That's the title of one book, folks. Um, angels, what the Bible really says about God's heavenly host, a.k.a. the truth about angels. Mm -hmm. Angels, God's supernatural agents, biblical insights, and true stories of angelic encounters. Angels, revised. Mm -hmm. That's Billy Graham's book, Angels. Angels, who they are and how they help. What the Bible reveals. Angels on assignment. <laughs> Wow. Oh, and let's just put it right out there. The Truth About Angels by Tony Evans. Angels and Heroes, True Stories from the Front Line. 
angels, God's secret agents, angels to the rescue, inspirational real life stories from an ER doctor, angels in our lives, everything you've ever wanted to know about angels and how they affect your life. I could scroll all night with this, but you know what? I want that off my screen now too. <laughs> and, but I'm going right back to it because guess what? There are videos from video curriculum Mm. that you heard me curriculum yeah. to seminars to sentimental family-friendly movies they have you covered at uh, good old cbd oh yeah the unseen video curriculum angels satan heaven hell and winning the battle for eternity that's the name of this video course folks you can't make this shit up mm -mm. angels in our midst angels in disguise the Angels song. I, I can't believe they have where, angel, where Angels Go, Trouble Follows. That has nothing to do with Angels. It's just a fun movie. Um, <laughs> I'll bet they don't know that, though. Angel Miracles, the two DVD pack. And incidentally, that unseen video curriculum, you can get this for the bargain price of $3. Ooh. Okay. It was, it was $24.99. <laughs> but you can get it now for 3 bucks. Because it's just that shitty. Okay? Yeah. That's, I'm, really? I'm just, I'm putting that out there. And now I want that off my screen. Goodbye. <laughs> okay. So one thing that I did notice there, I didn't read too far into the list, but there's lots of Christmas movies. Angels are definitely good fodder for Christian, well, Christian movies. Yeah, but Christmas movies. And how many of our quote unquote unsaved friends have or had angels on top of their Christmas trees? We are conditioned for this, not even as evangelicals, just as people who live in this world and in this society. We are conditioned for this. Now I'm going to talk just a little bit about what I know, because in Pentecostal circles, it always felt to me like the general rule of dealing with angels was to basically order them around. I saw this more than a few times, and obviously it wasn't for much beyond dramatic effect. They wanted to whip up the crowd. They wanted to stir up emotions. Angels are good for that, too. And I can remember, clear as day in my head, hearing phrases, either these phrases or phrases just like them from the pulpit. I call upon the angels to be with us in our worship. I'm calling on all warring angels to encircle and encamp around this place. I think that was Carmen's, actually. Yeah, I feel like I heard that sure. in a Carmen concert. Lord, send your ministering angels to comfort and heal. I call forth legions of warring angels to destroy every demonic evil spirit that has been set against me and my family. I'm pretty sure I prayed something kind of like that myself. <laughs> and then there's... We rebuke the power of the devil in this place and command every angel, command, command every angel in the heavenly realm to stand between us and the forces of darkness. All things of evil be gone in Jesus' name and by the power of his angels. Oh, I've heard that. I was told that the presence of angels was also a common perk when someone gets baptized in the Holy Spirit. I had people tell me you can see their light. You can feel their feathers brush against you. You can feel their hands on you, and the heat energy that emits from them is very real, and it's impossible to ignore. Well, mm. you know what? I think that's kind of probably your own metabolism making you feel hotter, a little bit more flushed, because right. you're seeking the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and that is a huge expense of emotion yeah. and energy. So if you feel hot, it's your own body yeah. trying to keep up with what you're doing mentally, and the things that we do, the things that we think, 
the things that affect us emotionally also affect us physically. So I really feel like that's where most of that comes from. Angels are also used as surrogates when God is taking too long to heal someone. That's why you'll start hearing if things aren't going the right way at an altar call or if they don't get enough people to come down front, they'll play the angel card oh, yeah. to get things to start happening. So if God is taking too long to do something, let's say it's a healing service and God is just taking too long to act, then they'll start praying things like, send your healing angels, Lord, let them touch your servant and make him whole. That's okay, God, yeah, we, know, we realize you're busy, but can we have some help here? Can you just send us a little bit of help here? Is pretty much what you're saying there. And this works whenever God is too busy to do basically anything, like being present in worship at Bible studies with your kids as they sweat out the SATs, you name it. You can call on angels for all of it. Mm -hmm. They won't admit it, but lots of Pentecostals pray to angels like they're praying to God and for reasons we've already discussed. God doesn't feel real enough, even to the average evangelical. So they make their own little gods as stand-ins when their God fails to hear them or act on their behalf. I get the distinct impression that's what was going on in the desert when they made the golden calf. Mm. Because in this 40-year-long two-week journey that they were on, yeah. it had to feel sort of kind of like God had abandoned them along the way at some point. And I don't care about the fire by night and the cloud by day thing. That just, I mean, your parents can be alive on the planet and still not be involved with you. God put up this facade and tried to get these people to think that he was with them. He didn't feel all that close. And that, I think, is where the whole thing with the golden calf came from. So this whole concept is as old and older than the Bible itself. This need for, for comfort, this need to see something happen or to feel something happening around us is it, it's it's part of our nature it's yeah. part of who we are and angels fit really really well into that mold oh and if you're paula white you can choose the ethnicity of your angels too we we learned this back yes. in november after all as part of her little tantrum over the election she called specifically on angels from africa and south america to help change the election results were they supposed to vote well when you said that the very first thing that popped into my head don't ask me why was an episode of gilligan's island where <laughs> gilligan is sick with some or is is perceived to be really sick with something and possibly dying and Mrs. Howell says, well, can we fix him some chicken soup? And uh, the skipper says, um, chicken soup's not going to help. She says, it won't, it won't hurt. It, so that's yeah. kind of the same thing. Yeah, that's, that can't that, hurt. That this, is, <laughs> this is the weird way that Spider's mind works sometimes. <laughs> that was precisely what jumped in there. Wow. So fuck it, I just decided to put it in there. Wow. <laughs> hey, there are, there are worse sources to draw from, I think. True. But I want to move into just a really, really small subtopic here, and that is the concept of entertaining angels unawares. One of my favorite aspects of this as a young evangelical was the notion that we sometimes entertain angels without knowing it. The concept comes from Hebrews 13, 2. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So got three little stories that popped into my head that I'm going to tell real briefly here about this. 
One was back in the mid to late 80s where my mother was involved in this Bible study. There were a bunch of women from our town that were involved in this Bible study. And as the story was told, this person, I think he was a traveling salesman or something along those lines, just came and knocked on the door where the Bible study was going on and somehow made his way into the house. Don't know who was foolish enough to let a complete stranger into a house with just like five or six women doing a Bible study, but he found his way into the house. And as the story goes, he sat and talked with them for a while and had a lot of really interesting insights on what they were studying at the time and gave what several of them believed to be answers to some longstanding questions that they had about the Bible, about spirituality, about a lot of things. And the story ends with this guy leaving the house and I think he forgot something. It was like a pen or something that got left behind. So the lady whose house was hosting the Bible study runs out to give him back his property, but there's no sign of him. Mm. There's no car. There's no anything. And it felt like not enough time had passed for him to have gotten out the door in his car and driven away so fast, because we're talking about a matter of seconds. He closes the door. They notice that this thing is still there. They run after him and just boom, he's gone. So that convinced several people in that room that they were entertaining an angel Yeah. because he showed up at an interesting and relevant point in time, answered a bunch of their questions and just disappeared. So they think that they were entertaining an angel. I think he just got in his car and drove away fast. Yeah. That's it. I think that more time passed than they realized. Probably. And he was and he was long gone. Then I remember being told a story, like my very first week on campus at Valley Farce, um, <laughs> one of the people that I got semi-close with and then sort of drifted away from told this story about how his pastor... Well, well, the pastor told the story. Let's put it this way, okay? This, this was a pastor telling a good story for his sermon. And as the story goes, he picks up a hitchhiker. I quote, never do this. It always starts out with, I never do anything like this. Uh-huh. But he picks up a hitchhiker, and it turns out that this guy is a Christian, and he is ag. And they get into this conversation about the decade of harvest and all the things that they have planned for the decade of harvest. And the guy in the car with the pastor says, what makes you think that you have a decade to do all this? Insinuating that Jesus was coming back. Right. And as the story goes, pastor looks over to the passenger side and lo and behold, it's empty. Wow. (laughs) It's a fun story, but I don't know about telling it as truth from your pulpit. I think that that's just slightly unethical. A little bit. And then there's the song, Jesus is Coming, by DeGarmo and Key. And this entire song is about the same basic thing, where there's an angel in the car, and they're having this conversation, and then there's a line toward the end, and when I turn to look at him, the stranger disappeared. And I'm thinking to myself, these two stories sound an awful lot alike. So I just get the impression that this was one of those urban legend sort of things. I knew Mm -hmm. a guy who knew a guy who went through this, except the pastor apparently was claiming that this actually happened to him. 
and that it was about the decade of harvest and he was being warned that they didn't have an entire decade that wow. Jesus was coming back in the 90s. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yep. And um, that's that's the way that a lot of these people they think in a lot of the same terms. So maybe this was his delusional fantasy, but maybe he heard this song a couple years yeah. earlier and that's what put it in his head. Right. I, you know, sometimes I wonder about these sermon illustrations because I've heard the same ones over and over and over. And I'm like, do these people have a book of these things? Is there a book of sermon illustrations? And they like group them under by topic because it just seems like they just propagate themselves. Well, sure. And the details change a little bit. They're, yeah. they're decent urban legends. That's yeah. what they are. And they keep getting circulated around. But just like any good urban legend, there has to be some kind of traceable foundation in truth. You know, right. my mother worked with this person who witnessed this. Or there, there's always some kind of tie. There's less right. than six degrees of separation. <laughs> and there's always some kind of a tie-in. So this guy, whether it was an actual deluded vision that he had, or it was just these song lyrics were going through his head and his brain made up a story just like we talked about last week. Either way, it could be true. He could have thought that it was completely 100% true and it still could have come from that song. You know, that's just the way that it is. That's what our brains do, especially when we start thinking in such linear a way yeah. about certain things like our religion, like our faith. The lines between what's true in terms of what we experience and what's being manufactured by these overactive brains of ours, the lines get blurred. It becomes more and more difficult to see the difference when you're thinking along those lines. And that's all you ever think about. Moving along from that, I said I wasn't going to spend a whole lot of time on that because, again, there's a lot of stories out there that have a similar storyline that you could pull from. And there are probably people listening right now saying, I heard that story, but in, my, in the version I heard, dot, dot, dot. Okay, so I get that. And that's why I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this because we're not about urban legend no. on this show. We try not. No, we try not. <laughs> we try to be as on point and truthful as we possibly can. But what then is the point of all of this? We're getting toward the end of our time together for this week. And I just want to pose that question. What, what is the point of all of this? What message am I trying to convey tonight? Simply put, Angels are a convenient component of Christian faith in general. And while I've never been specifically told to pray to angels as either a Catholic or an evangelical, it's plain to see that people pick up on this concept well on their own. They also are conditioned to see angels as sources of power, comfort, and help through the words of hymns and worship songs. Evangelicals might be just careful enough to not elevate angels to God status, but mark my words, they know just precisely how effective angels are in their efforts to market the, quote, power of God to the masses. They know the allure of the concept of angels, and they encourage people to believe in them and the powers they possess. When people are desperate, 
and they know that there are things in their lives that are beyond their control. They look for solutions, reinforcements, and things to cling to so that they can feel better about their situation and have something to which they can attribute unexpected successes or solutions to problems. The solution couldn't possibly have come from the doctor who completed the surgery or the medicine that knocked out the cancer. If you truly believe in God, these things come from him or by proxy, his angels. I believed for a long time that we survived our car wreck in 93 because angels rushed to our aid. I used to have this image in my head of angels completely covering the outside of the car, creating basically a cushion so that we could be spared from the full impact of the crash. Our crazy landlord at the time even quoted Psalm 91 at us as we were being lifted into the ambulance. We all want to feel safe. We all want to feel protected. We all want to know that someone has our back. Angels are a good solution for these things in people's minds, but the same questions arise when angels fail to act as they do when God fails to act. All children have guardian angels if you interpret Jesus's words that way, and yet a shocking number of children around the world died of starvation just during this conversation. Where was their help and protection? We already know that God can drop manna from heaven, right? Can he give an angel a loaf of bread and some clean water? People died of suicide while you listen to this episode too. Sorry for another trigger for those of you who are triggered by that kind of topic, but it's true. During the course of this conversation, someone out there and probably lots of someone's out there committed suicide. If angels are real and can appear to people corporeally, where was the comfort for those people in the hour of their worst despair? Why were none of their lives worth a little supernatural intervention? As I've said many times before, we are on our own. There's nothing out there poised to intervene in our time of need, but it might surprise you to learn that in a purely humanistic way, I do believe in angels, but not the supernatural kind. You see, to me, angels come in the form of people witnessing a terrible accident and chasing down a pickup truck to get a license plate number when they attempt to hit and run, and that happened during our accident. They come in the form of two guys approaching a bad car wreck, not knowing if the whole thing is going to explode because, quote, we've got to disconnect the battery. There's people alive in there. That happened that day, too. They come in the form of a small crowd on the top of a mountain when a middle-aged man slips on a wet rock and falls. They take the form of a doctor, a massage therapist, and an EMT all in the right place at the right time. They come in the form of men who step up when a young boy needs a positive male role model in his life and no one else is there. They come in the form of someone who loves you unconditionally and keeps your mind centered on your own value as a human being. In those things that happen, where we find ourselves at a point of need, when our own strength fails us, and there are other people, people there to see us through those places of struggle, difficulty, pain, and fear, that we truly see what most people setting their sights on angels rarely do. The power of things like love, courage, compassion, and empathy. We don't need supernatural forces to see us through times of trouble. We need each other, and we need to be rational, reasoned, and proactive when it comes to solving our own problems. Moreover, we should have enough empathy and compassion for each other to chase down a pickup truck to help a stranger once in a while. So here's a challenge for you as we end things out. Be the angel in someone else's life when you can. Be one of the helpers. Give selflessly and care genuinely. You have way more power than any angel to do 
anything people give them credit for. And you might just help someone see past the foolishness of belief. And in showing them where real help, love, support, and human compassion actually come from, you could wind up giving them a gentle nudge that sends them one step further toward getting and staying unbound. hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.